need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. Joining me on the other line, it's the Make DeLorean, Andy Greenwald! What a mashup. That's the mashup our culture deserves. That's the mashup this fucking podcast deserves. Uh, welcome to The Watch. It's Monday. Good show for you today. Andy and I are talking about the latest episode of The Mandalorian. We'll talk a little bit about Mank, uh, David Fincher's new film on Netflix, and then we have an interview with a teacher creator, Hannah Fidel. It's all coming up next on The Watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com Slash watch $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three month plan only speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan additional taxes fees and restrictions apply see Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube cars can be a big investment so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Greenwald, what's up? I'm just trying to game this out a little bit. So The Mandalorian is also about a grizzled, past his prime uh, hunter who briefly was the best he was at what he did. I don't think Mandalorian is past his prime. No, I'm talking about Boba. Oh, yeah, right, right. Boba is the Herman Mankiewicz. <laughs> okay, let's not do this. Let's just talk about the content. We so got a lot ba- of content. Baby Yoda would be Orson Welles, right? Or Marion Davies, I think. Yeah, that's true. No, Amy you know. Sedaris has the Marion Davies thing going. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. yeah. And they wonder why they don't pay us the big bucks. Um, Andy, it's, uh, it's lovely to talk to you. Here we are. I thought we could get right into discussing stuff because we had a, a great culture weekend, a lot of stuff to watch. I want to let people know that later in the week, uh, Andy and I will have, uh, Mickey Down and Conrad K from, uh, the creators of industry on Thursday. That's a fantastic conversation. And so what we're basically doing is doing industry week by week, but obviously, you know, you can watch the entire season on HBO Max. Uh, we'll and talk you might, about it. Because I think five premieres tonight, Monday, and our interview is going to go up Thursday. And we talked about six. We yeah, talked we talked about, about Nutcracker, so which is the ahead. sixth episode. Yeah. So if you want to be up to date, I mean, I think that it was a pretty general conversation, but there we allude to some things that happen later in the season. That show continues to climb my top 10 list. Uh, I'm trying to fix it. We also are going to be recording our best of the year TV pod with Sam Esmail this week. So that'll be coming up, I think, the following week. So exciting times on the Watch Pod. Exciting times in the Star Wars universe. It's interesting. You know, like I feel like the last couple of episodes, you know, the Ahsoka episode, obviously, we had Mallory come on and talk about what 
that character's arrival in The Mandalorian meant to her and meant to so many Star Wars fans. And uh, I think obviously that that feeling was in some in some places doubled by the appearance of of Boba Fett in this most recent episode. I got to say, man, off to off the top. Mm -hmm. I am having a hard time because I need to kind of think about some truths I held self-evident about Sarlacc pits. Yeah. No, this is a great place to start. Great place to start. I did not think that was an ambiguous ending for him. Let's put it that way. I don't like to be the law and order of podcasts and rip our conversation straight from the headlines. But what I'm saying is Sarlacc pits, kind of a hoax. Yes. Are they that bad? Right. They <laughs> shut down all business on Tatooine because of these right. giant teeth. No outdoor pits. dining. <laughs> None at all, because you could build your patio over a Sarlacc pit. Exactly. And you would be eaten. As it turns out, maybe it only eats old people, right? Yes. Because Boba Fett, who, by the way, shouts at Tamira Morrison, love him as an actor, thrilled to see him. He doesn't look without underlying conditions. Do you know no. what I mean? <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So great, great place to start this. Getting That us was the last time we had seen him. You and me as guys who watch movies. Um, <laughs> you and me. Um, you a guy who watches movies and me. The last time we had seen Boba Fett, he was going face first into a, a Sarlacc pit. Sarlacc yeah. pit, for anybody who hasn't seen Return of the Jedi, is that thing, that hole in the ground with teeth. Yeah, and you want to avoid that. He seemed fully ingested by that Sarlacc. Mm -hmm. And I know that we have seen, both in The Mandalorian, but in popular culture in general, it is possible for Jonah to get swallowed by the whale and get out on the other side. You know, like We've even in The Mandalorian. Pinocchio. Geppetto swims in, swims exactly. out. There are NBD. priors. But I just felt like the Sarlacc pit was, you know, nature's food disposal unit. You know, like it was, it was a, it, it seemed like that was it for Boba. But here he is, he pops up a couple decades. Well, it's actually, the Mandalorian is set how many years past Return of the Jedi? Like five or something. It's not that, that's not that long. So he obviously um, got out, you know, and he, yeah, here he it, is. It, and I just want to just, circle back to this point because generally I am anti-hole in the ground. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to fall in any hole. Yeah. But I feel like if you're going to choose a hole to fall in, fall in the one that doesn't have teeth. Like, this just seems simple. And it's really messing with my internal hierarchy of holes <laughs> that that one seems totally fine. I guess you lose your armor. Yeah. Right? So you, and, come out, you come out a little bit naked and afraid, but otherwise, fine. And not only did Boba Fett get ingested by a primordial hole in the ground. Mm. He seems to have popped out the other side with a degree from Columbia in internal medicine. Yes. Well, also from the MIT robotics lab, um, because that was a gastro situation that frankly I admired. You yes. know, I think a lot of us are suffering from reflux this time of year. I after, would say Fennec is no longer allergic to onions. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Fennec can go have Sichuanese hot pot whenever she wants without suffering any ill effects the next day. <laughs> there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions. I want to say my own entry point here is I, I, this is, I guess I'm kind of fishing for likes here because I was workshopping a take that may have been the most me take ever to be taken on this podcast. Is this, I, I bet, can I guess it? Can we play a little bit of, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is this going to be about childcare? No. 
Okay. Because I thought maybe you were going to be mad that Mando was neglectful of a meditating baby Yoda up on the seeing stone there. No, I mean, I think I really related to that because if one's child ever does take a nap in the middle of the day, you would go to war with an invading <laughs> army to keep it from being interrupted. I really sure. related to that. Sure. No, my, my point was more, I'm watching this episode and I'm digging it and I'm enjoying it and there's Jedis and there's dark sabers and there's Boba fucking Fett, right? Mm-hmm. And part of me was like, are we sure we're done with standoff episodes, standalone episodes about fish people? Well, what do you, you mean? You know what I mean? Can't, are we sure we're ready to move on from the show's uh, kind of throwback, A-Team-esque, wander into this planet, wander out of this planet. Like, well, the genius of the show, as we've said week after week, is that it was built to do both, right? That it, it was built to engage with and expand on the larger serialized storytelling, but also the larger Star Wars fandom. But what one of the things that, that caused us to fall in like and then in love with it was that it was just kind of poking around the margins. And then this season has really escalated into being a full-throated embrace of the fandom and to the point where this episode, um, chapter was chapter 13, is this what we're talking, does the thing that I think the majority of Star Wars fans, certainly OG Star Wars fans our age, have been wanting mm-hmm. since the Sarlacc pit. So th- I was going to do that take, but I abandoned it because I don't know if I really want more fish people. And I actually liked how cool it was. So two points. One... Well, I'll start with I'll start with this one. I really admire the way this show in its humble 33-minute runtime way just does the damn thing. Like people like Mallory as we learned last week have been agitating for Ahsoka Tano for years. When it was time to introduce her, they just they were like, "Great, let's get the actress who everyone wants to play her, who will do a great job, and we'll introduce her with a cool ass scene in the forest." That's it. We didn't mm-hmm. overthink it. We didn't lay breadcrumb trails. We just did it. Similarly, we saw a little bit of Tamira Morrison in the season premiere, but otherwise he's just like, hi, yes, I'm here. I'm Boba Fett now, and I'm going to shoot my backpack rocket and then look back to the camera the way you nerds have been doing with your action figures for 35 years. Right. They didn't overthink it, and it was kind of low-key and charming in its way. I like that. The bigger point that I'm still finding so fascinating, and I'm sure much smarter thinkers and writers than us, including probably Ben Lindbergh, which I haven't read his piece about this episode yet, but people who've been writing about the show, it's really fascinating what's going on here. And we touched on it last week, how, you know, I guess Dave Filoni, who's an EP on the show, has been, his life's project has been like spackling the holes in this totally messy franchise and doing the parts that people want to see, as opposed to what the movies were doing. And that's kind of what this was too, writ large, right? Because the thing about Boba Fett, we all fell in love with him because he had cool-ass armor and was in the background. Yeah. He didn't do anything in the movies. He never did anything. He didn't even have a backstory that we knew of. It was expanded on a little bit in the prequels, but otherwise, blank slate. Now, all of a sudden, he's just like, hi, I'm Boba. I have a really strong moral code and a cool staff. Like, this is doing more work on screen, in canon, than anyone has done with his character in decades. And that's- I have a- Fascinating. Yeah, a couple of things about Boba. So number one, shows up. He's just wearing that robe. He's got he's got Fennec with him. Uh, Ming-Na Wen killing it. And he says, basically, like, that's my armor. That's the armor that my dad gave to me. And as soon as he started talking about that legacy, I couldn't help but think about Ashley Schaefer BMW from Eastbound and Down. Thank God. And, uh, and let the boy watch 
And I learned it from my father, who learned it from his father. And there was a part of me that really just was like, I'm so happy that this guy is playing Boba Fett, but was Will was Will Ferrell that busy? <laughs> no, well, Will Ferrell played Ashley Schaefer, so he plays Django. It's his son Gabriel who brings sure. the plums from the market. Right, and his wife who, Beverly or Donna, depending on the take you watch. <laughs> and, f- and for what it's worth, um, Gabriel was never cast in canon, in Eastbound canon. So That's true. When we do the Mandalorian for Eastbound and Down. No, and the other thing I was going to say about Boba Fett is I'm not so sure that he is, uh, as a bounty hunter, he's no Lee Iacocca. Because he makes like a life oath to the Mandalorian after he gets his armor back where he's like, well, now I am on this long, arduous journey with you to recover this child because I wanted my armor back. I think you could have got it for less than that. I think that... You know, again, this is this isn't the parent in me, but this is the person approaching middle age in me. I think he's bored. I think retirement doesn't suit him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He was he he moved to the, basically the Palm Springs of the galaxy. Yeah, Tatooine. Yeah, he finally shed his suit. You know, and and could get into other things like maybe some sort of Eastern meditation. He's wearing a robe, or maybe he just likes to go schwitz. I don't know, but I think he missed the game. You know, and you can tell that because. He seems to have picked up some new fighting skills, which is cool. The armor maybe didn't fit him as snugly as it used to. Right. Something that I really appreciated. He was wearing breathable pants while wearing the armor on top. He also suggests, it also suggested that he was wandering in the desert, able to just fully doctor house people who were near death, and yet could not find it in his uh, abilities over the last five years to best Timothy Oliphant in an armor competition. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get the armor. So I, I think that he protests a little too much. I just think he wants back in the action. To your point, though, about whether or not Mandalorian is deviating from its mission of the week thing, I think, in a sense, that's inevitable. But even the uh, suggestion that we're going to go and spring Bill Burr from prison next week. Well, well this is the... People, like, there were a bunch of Ringer tweets that I appreciated that were basically like, Mandalorian season two, Jason Gallagher sent this and it was just like dudes just draining three pointers, which I think is <laughs> correct. The idea that at the moment of high, heightened stakes, rising peril, they've lost baby Yoda to the dark side, that, th- that the thing to do is go spring Bill Burr. That's a heat check. That's a heat check for this show. You know what I mean? That episode, while entertaining, that's the one that I would hold up as the low point of a show that hasn't really had many low points. Just because... It's attempts to be like, you know, old fashioned and kind of amusing, but also there are no real stakes here. And it's it's a comedian shooting a saber. I mean, shooting a blaster. That was not its best. And so the fact that they're like, that's the guy we need in this galaxy full of stone cold killers. Question mark. It's a testament to how good this show is, though, that like when when that is put out as like the barrier for entry, like we got to go get Bill Burr back. To, to make sure that we can go get Baby Yoda and, and find Moff Gideon. I'm just like, sure, that sounds right. Yeah, you probably should go get go get this guy out of prison. It, I'm sure there is a more direct line to Moff Gideon, but they are putting together their dirty dozen. You know, they have Bo-Katan, they have Ahsoka, they have Boba, they're going to get Bill Burr, you know, may, maybe <laughs> the frog lady. Just as you drew it up in all yeah. the Star Wars Reddit boards over the last decade. <laughs> It, it's 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 video game logic that we talked to we talked about before was just like there is there aren't unlimited paths. The yeah. show doesn't trouble itself with like being so clever to get us from A to B to C in a way we've never been before. It's just like, hey, 
that's B over there and it's on fire. We better do that. It's, okay, that's fine. And there's and always I, forward momentum in the show. There's like that character, the Mandalorian is always, even when he stops to accomplish a mission to get the thing that he needs from that planet, he's always, it, it, is, it is just the gun smoke model of like, keep them moving, keep the character in progression. Now, if you wanted to do Parenting Corner on this show, when you realize that a baby recognizes a word or its name, you don't just do it as a parlor trick. That's that's not helping. That's not helping. Because little Grogues is so excited every time Metal Dad says his name that it's just not fair. He's not actually doing anything, but he's so excited. You know, I feel like he's crushing his young spirit and may end up pushing him to the dark side. That's my read on it. I, I have to say that as we sort of, this is the third to last episode. I think there are two left. I, I also just, my last note, about it was mm. just I thought Robert Rodriguez did a great job. It's apparently it he was like a, a last second replacement for someone who dropped out, and I don't know if that was like James Mangold or, or who wasn't able to do it. But he you, came don't in. Be at, modest, Chris. It was it was you. <laughs> he came in at the last second. That's right. I was I had a a Harper's birthday from industry and wasn't able to direct the Mandalorian. <laughs> um, Rodriguez came in. That this episode has like a kind of Guns of Navarone storming the mountain vibe to it. I really liked. Um, and uh, it's just an, a, an excellent action episode, I thought, like given the setting. I agree of, with that. I think that he is a little bit casual with Stormtrooper death. Uh, and I, I have some notes about there too. the post-Empire sort of makeup of Stormtroopers. I saw Concepcion tweeting about this, but I also had some notes about they don't really seem to have cover formations in the, uh, in the Stormtroopers anymore. They just kind of like, it's, it's sort of the way I used to play Max Payne when I would unlock unlimited lives and just run into rooms with two guns. But I didn't know if you noticed that the stormtroopers seemed to really be catching bad ones. I did. I mean, I, I, I think that one of the smartest things Lucas ever did was make stormtroopers stormtroopers because then it's the ultimate red shirt. Like, it, we don't ever see them. I, as a five-year-old, I thought they were just robots. And so it never really troubled me that they were being gunned down or lightsabered down. So this is definitely the inevitable conclusion to that. I think that, our friend Jason was making some very strong points on Twitter, which is like, at a certain point, is it even worth it wearing the armor that eliminates all peripheral vision if it is completely ineffective at stopping anything? I mean, this this shit was chipping like like plastic. It was completely useless. I don't know what it's meant to protect you from. And then, yes, I do think, my hope is that as Lucasfilm continues to mine its universe for content, I think there's a not uninteresting story about the economic opportunities for people in a post-Empire world to be like, like <laughs> it's a pension. You know what I mean? That's right. Like, I, I right. guess I'll do this. Like, I, it, who makes money how and why and where is always a little bit of a question mark, but maybe maybe that's where we're headed. I did maybe, have a maybe, large... Maybe we need a generation kill set in this moment of the that Empire. Wasn't that supposed I mean, to galaxy. be the Boyega character in the... The sequels. I mean, that was supposed well, right. to. Yeah, you right. know. I mean, that was supposed to be the, like what happens to this guy when you realize you don't want to be a stormtrooper. Well, that's good then. That means the Mandalorian is a fitting um, metaphor for how Lucasfilm treated John Boyega <laughs> and how um, important he was to them. I just wanted to sound not a serious note, but one real note that I thought uh, we could ch- chat a little bit about, which was uh, in this episode of the Mandalorian, the Empire or the New Empire or the First Order or whatever we're calling it, blasts Mando's ship Mm. out of uh, existence beyond Mm. any repair, even by cool robots. 
And I applaud that. And I applaud it for a very specific reason. This is also probably the darkest episode of The Mandalorian in so much as if you are emotionally invested in Baby Yoda, he is in the most peril that he has been in uh, in this series. This is a good thing. One of the things that I think has really hamstrung Star Wars films, especially the sequels, Mm -hmm. was the inability to kill their darlings. That as soon as something became something that you could merchandise or something that people essentially cared deeply about, that was off limits and that you basically couldn't have any. And I, I don't, I'm not somebody who thinks that the only thing that's like suitably dramatic is character death, but what happens to Chewbacca in the last uh, mm-hmm. sequel is a really good example of, we want to have all of the simulation of an emotional experience without actually any of the consequences of killing a character. And I'm not saying that baby Yoda is going to turn to the dark side or is going to somehow get killed. God forbid. But, I do think that blowing up that ship before it becomes a Millennium Falcon that people are overly invested in and have, you know, toys of and think about for 30 years and nothing bad can happen to this inanimate object that's Mm -hmm. part of a fictional world anyway. It's a good thing. You You should take advantage of this opportunity to um, teach people how to watch this story without having them be like, I own this. You know what I mean? Like that fandom thing is really pervasive in Star Wars. And that idea that people are like, I can't have anything bad happen to the characters I love or the things that I care about. And I thought that this episode did a pretty good job of within the realm of it's still PG, PG PG-13-ish, kind of upsetting the apple cart a little bit. I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying. Um... And I hope that that's because of the unique position that John Favreau carved out for himself and for the show within Disney Plus and everything. Basically, like this show is not necessarily targeted at people who buy toys, other than people like Steve Carell and forty-year-old virgin toys. You know what I mean? And, and no disrespect to people who collect beautiful collectibles, and I know Baby Yodas are flying off the shelves, but I don't even know if they expected that because I don't think they were ready for Christmas last year. Um, that's a good thing for the long-term storytelling health of this franchise, and I think that. We won't do this, but hope maybe someone could, that if you look back on the most recent trilogy, the thing that it screwed up the most was death and what it meant. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the Chewbacca fake out in the third film, which was just atrocious. But also, Oscar Isaac's character was meant to die in the first one. And look, we love the star of Metal Gear Solid, the movie, more than most podcasters. But obviously... Oscar Isaac is generally a value add to any production, but the character never fit. There was no role for him to play. He stole screen time probably from John Boyega, who was meant to be a star, and it didn't matter. You know, no one knew what to do with him other than they liked him. I don't even know if he stole screen time. I just think he was always, I always was expecting him to have... Something to do? Something to do. Right, well, I just mean that... The Carrie Russell plot line in that third movie is basically like a gesture to that. That's what I mean. And I don't think he stole screen time from Boyega other than the fact that suddenly there was an extra character being shoehorned into it. Right. And that character got some like some of the Han lines or the adventurous spirit. And then it's kind of duplicative. Like you don't need both. Right. Similarly, like look at what they did to the the three leads. Right. I mean, uh, Harrison Ford, Han Solo is killed by his son in the first movie, which is, again, like probably the most provocative idea in that whole series of movies. And it's classic J.J. Abrams like. Yes, this, but what if that? You mm-hmm. know, and it and it and it gets a head head exploding emoji, and then you have to make it work. They did that, 
and then spent the next two movies running as far away from that as they could because they wanted Adam Driver to be kind of heroic ultimately, even though he did this incredibly heinous Oedipal thing. Sure. Mark Hamill, I, I enjoyed what happened with Luke, but obviously the fandom didn't in the second movie. And then you have this terrible circumstance with Carrie Fisher where you're building her to be the star of the third movie and she tragically passes away. And then you kind of ham fist it with this fake scene and CGI. And it's like, all of this is to say, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. There has to be stakes. There has to be loss. There has to be death. If this is going to be a long-term thing, that's not just um, fan service, toy merchandising and back padding. And hopefully the death of the Razor Crest is the beginning of realizing that. <laughs> um, we'll be talking more about that in the next two episodes of Mandalorian and the subsequent Monday episodes of the pod. But um, before we get to our interview with Hannah, I thought we would talk a little bit about Bank. Uh, in any year, I think this would be a major movie just because it's a David Fincher movie and it's a David Fincher movie about making movies in a lot of ways. But in this year specifically, it stands strangely alone in the field. I mean, there's lots of cool movies this year. I'm going to do uh, Best Films of the Year with the Big Picture Gang uh, in just a little bit. And it's it was such an interesting experience putting together a list of movies because my top movies are very similar to the movies that I saw this year. Right. So it's like a it's like one of my lists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but Mank, I think in any year, would be considered like a really major achievement. I know that there is some lukewarm reaction on Twitter to it. I think that it's a movie that really rewards multiple viewings and Netflix affords that. It's one of the better things I think about movies hitting streaming services like that is that if there is something that is so layered and dense like Mank, you can immediately rewatch certain scenes. Um, what did you think of it? I loved it. I totally loved it. And I can't wait to talk about why, but I do want to just pause and say, I know that on this podcast, we have immortalized um, Doug from Tidal as the guy who totally botched the multiple album streams that were exclusive to Tidal back in the day. I wonder if Doug kind of glowed up, got a corner office at Netflix back when people had offices, and he was the guy who wined and dined and made the deals and went to Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings and was just like, guys, I know we've been a TV company up till now with our content, but like we're in the movie game in a big way. And Ted and Reed are like, that's great news. What happened? He's just like, I got the new movies from Alfonso Cuaron and David Fincher. And they're like, holy shit, tell us about them. And he's like, okay, uh, let me read the fine print. So they're both in, uh, they're both deeply personal films in black and white. Right. And at that point, uh, you heard the glass breaking as Doug was ejected into his next. Right. Um, and, and the Virgin River folks were like, yes. <laughs> I, look, I, I, I love that Netflix made those movies. I'm grateful to Netflix. It's just funny to me that that's like movie, this is their big movie push for, I know. for, for eyeballs. They're, they're not easy views. Okay, so Mank, I totally loved it. I wasn't even sure if I was going to love it. And I loved it in such a surprising and specific way, which is to say that I didn't know Fincher had jokes. Like, I didn't know that Fincher was going to make a movie that would be this kind of funny and light and clever and witty at times, you know? Um, it was such a pleasure for me to see a movie that probably when all is said and done and Fincher's filmography is like a, a, a holy scroll for us to consider, will stand out from his work as obviously deeply personal because the script was originally written by his father and, and, and personal in that it is about making movies. But this feels like the kind of one for him that could be completely re-energizing in a career as incredible as his has already been. And specifically, what I mean by that is he is, 
you don't you know you don't need a completely uh, naive luddite like me to be like this guy's a master filmmaker. You can <laughs> listen to Sean in the Big Picture. You can read any other director talk about him. The level of detail and the visual brilliance that is his hallmark is front and center in Mank. It's gorgeous to look at every moment. The lighting in the black and white and the the grain that he put on it to make it seem like an old film is just stunning. But I I'm thinking a lot about what Scott Frank said to us last week uh, when we were talking about The Queen's Gambit, where he was saying that the best advice Steven Soderbergh ever gave him as a director was to fight the urge to make a perfect shot and to remember the value of a pleasing shot. Mm -hmm. Because a perfect shot can be kind of, um, uh, if you spend so much time worrying and fretting over the details, you bleed the life from something. And the thing about Fincher is that he is the exception that proves the rule. Every image is perfect, but it feels alive, right? But this movie brought in a different kind of life to it that I just was so happy to see it. It swings, you know, it's funny. It's, it's surprising and clever and snappy and playful, even while every shot is composed within an inch of its life. And I adored watching it for that reason. Yeah, I think um, the number one question I wanted to ask you about Mank is how you felt about Tom Pelfrey and Gary Oldman taking uh, jobs away from Jewish actors. Okay, thank you. This was the thing that I wasn't going to bring up. It's, has anyone checked Arliss, Arliss Howard's background too? He is Jew, he is Jewish, I believe. He and Deborah Winger are very involved in uh, peace in the Middle East. I think. Well, they could be coming at it from different sides. <laughs> I'm just true. saying. <laughs> I, 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 there, there was there was a strong strong element of uh, Mrs. Maisel going on. Yeah. To me, and I take this especially personally, not just as a, as a Jew, but. The Mankiewiczs, Chris, were born in Wilkes-Barre, PA, as was I. Uh-huh. So we are basically the same, you know? Like, I can think of no differences between us. You should get a co-writing co credit on All About Eve, yeah. I, I've often thought so. My work on Cleopatra is really, really underrated. Um, you know, it's one of those things where if, if Gary Oldman is playing you and someone as handsome as Tom Pelfrey is playing one of you, I'm like, I, I'm not mad at that. You know what I mean? I feel like that's good for the brand. It's good for us. Long term. But thank you for asking. That was really, that really was at the forefront of my mind. No, you know, I think that I've seen some people say like, this is um, an outlier. This is a one of one from Fincher. And I, I, I disagree with that. I definitely think that this feels of a piece with his work. I think that there, in a, in a lot of ways, this reminded me a, a lot of social network. Um, in some ways, Mank felt a little more Sorkin-y to me than, than Social Network did in some ways. There's uh, both, there are some tropes and flourishes that happen within it that are, I associate with Sorkin, but I think also the concern with mass media and who decides what we see and what we hear and what we know and what we learn is something that um, it, it Fincher's touched on before, and he touched on it in Gone Girl. I mean, he, he's able to come back to these themes. I think he touches on it a little bit in Zodiac too. The role of media in the world is obviously like a real big theme for him. I mentioned that it rewards multiple viewings and I, I wanted to kind of throw this to you as a more general question because so I watched it and I think I had a very similar reaction to the one that Sean described when they did the big picture episode last week about it, which is you kind of watch it and the first 30 minutes are going by and there's so much happening mm -hmm. and yet it seems so light in some ways and you're kind of like oh is, is this going to be told from the perspective of a guy in traction who's reading large swaths of the citizen kane script out loud and then it obviously frees itself up 
and starts going back and forth across time. But when you watch it the first time, and then you start to just go back, and whether you watch it in sections or you watch the entire thing again, I think knowing Upton Sinclair is going to be a major part of the movie, or you know, keep an eye on the Shelley Metcalf character, because even though he seems like he's just the sixth guy in the room, he winds up being an important part. Or um, little bits about his and Joseph, or his and Louis B. Mayer, or his and Thalberg, or his and Selznick's relationships wind up kind of all coming together in a knot towards the end. I, I felt like that was much more rewarding the second time around than the first time where I think I was just sort of blown away by the technical achievement and the look and the feel of the movie. I totally agree with with you, and I appreciate that observation so much because I didn't really know what I was going into. Obviously, the headline of, or the logline is Mankiewicz writing Citizen Kane and his tussles with right. both Hearst and Orson Welles. That's not what this movie is. The fact that the actual, you know, engagement with Wells really only comes at the very end and is secondary to this to the movie's really interesting politics surprised me and I found it much more compelling and as you said I was in a similar boat the first and this is also the Netflix nature of it like watching it on my couch you're not drawn in as immediately as you are in a theater where you've been, you've gotten your seat, you've watched trailers and you're in from jump. You know, I, I was fidgeting a little bit in the first 10, 20 minutes, partly because of the Netflix nature of it, but also partly because I wasn't sure what the movie was other than the fact that I was enjoying it. When it zeroes in on that, it's like, oh, it's actually incredibly relevant in a lot of surprising ways and pointed, you know, politically in a way that I really admired. Um, that, that, that leveled up for me that leveled the movie up for me and my and my perception of it. If anything, it kind of underplays, I think, the Wells tension, which is, it's been interesting to read. Mark Harris over at Vulture has had a conversations with Fincher about this, and he was just tweeting about it again today, that in his, Jack Fincher, David's father's early drafts, it was basically like like the Pauline Kael article yeah. writ large. The Raising King. Like, yeah. Wells is a fraud. Uh, he had nothing to do with this. And... Uh, this isn't what that movie is, and I think it's to to its credit that it's not. That's there, the idea of authorship, but also a much deeper idea over art as advocacy and art versus life and what we contribute to when we engage with the broader social world uh, and the cost that it can uh, take from us. That was really, really obviously relevant to 2020, but just really fascinating and compelling in a different way. I love the movie. I hope our, our listeners get a chance to watch it, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more. I do, but what do you think about this idea if somebody says to you, yeah, this movie's great, you got to watch it twice. Like, do you look at that as, as a prescription for something that you don't really want to ever catch in the first place? <laughs> or I, 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 you know, I don't like watching things again. I don't yeah. enjoy it generally, and I don't generally have the time, but the, it's easier when something's pleasurable. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, this is just such a great and fun hang, and it's beautiful, and the performances are incredible. I mean... And it's saying something to say I'd watch this again, considering the most devastating uh, gut shot of the film is when bloated 60-year-old drunk uh, Gary Oldman announces, I'm 43 years old. I mean, I feel like the two of us felt particularly triggered by that moment. But I think it, I think it merits a second viewing. And I think it would, you know, I, I actually might consider doing it myself. The, the other thing that I wanted to add, though, that I think is really interesting since we haven't had a chance to talk too much Fincher since then was just, you know, his reputation as 
exacting, as a perfectionist, as demanding. And, you know, I, I think Charles Dance, who was, who was, by the way, I first became aware of Charles Dance in uh, Alien first movie, yeah. Alien 3, yeah. said that the, the big uh, dinner confrontation scene, they did like a hundred takes of that. Yeah. You know? And I think our perception of that is like, oh, what a, you know, a monster, demanding, stereotypical, exacting perfectionist director. And like Jake Gyllenhaal didn't love it. Downey didn't love it on Zodiac, although it got interesting work from them. And then when you and I talked to Kim Dickens last year and we met, talked to her about Gone Girl and she's like, I love it. I love David. I love doing it. And there's a certain kind of actor that's like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to get in the arena and wrestle. Yeah. And when you watch this movie, I don't know how everyone, individual actors feeling was, but like Lily Collins is great in this movie. Tubbins Middleton is great in this movie. Uh, Arliss Howard is great in this movie. And these are all actors who I have time for. Sure. But I Pel wasn't necessarily I checking Pelfrey for was great. Pelfrey from, Pelfrey. yeah. All of them. And it seems like they're, they buy in and he really gets something. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it to Sean to explain this to me. And I'm sure that he has been and will continue to. But Fincher is really unique because he is that exacto knife blade of a technician. But he gets a humanity that other directors sometimes can't. I'm a connoisseur of David Fincher multiple take stories. Like I, I yes. love Robert Downey Jr. peeing in jars on the set of Zodiac as a message to Zodiac uh, to Fincher. The Mark Ruffalo stories about Fincher making him do like 85 takes of of a walk and talk, and him almost thinking that he was going to get fired, but Fincher actually just wanting to change the a background player's like diction or posture. I, I love all of them. I think you can do that. And the reason why these stories are resonate with people is because of the results. If he was, not to cast aspersions, but if he was Josh Trank, nobody would care about how many takes he did. It would just be like, clearly that's not working. Clearly what Fincher does works. He gets incredible performances out of people and he gets them into this zone. And that, like the, everything I've read about it is that the reason why he does what he does is so that he can match the levels of performance, not only from the actors, but from the technicians who are working on set with him at the same level so that Robert Downey Jr. and the, and the grip and the lighting and everything is all humming at the same frequency at the same mm -hmm. moment. And that's whether he stitches that together from take 35 and take 64 or whether that's like actually just happens on one of these takes is what Fincher is looking for. I, before we get to Hannah, I just wanted to ask you about a quick news story that's just sort of popped up while we were recording. And that was going back to our conversation at the end of last week about Warner Brothers moving its entire 2021 mm. cinematic slate, the theatrical slate onto HBO Max. We had sort of talked, I think, both on the pod and a little bit off the pod about whether or not this was a, a horse leaving the barn situation and what, what the state of the barn was <laughs> in regards to how the filmmakers and producers of these movies mm -hmm. that were moving into this dual release strategy felt about this. And now it turns out, according to the uh, Variety report that just recently went up today, it sounds like Legendary Entertainment, I'm quoting, the production company that co-financed Dune and Godzilla versus King Kong may take legal action against Warner Brothers over the studio's decision to send its movies to HBO Max at the same time that they debut in cinemas. Apparently, Legendary is looking for more generous terms in their agreement with HBO, and it also has a bit in here about Denis Villeneuve being pretty disappointed that this is going to be the fate of Dune, which is obviously the project that he's dedicated the last couple of years of his life to. Any reaction to that story? I just think it, 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 I'm not surprised. I mean, there are so many, especially when you're talking about uh, movies on that level, 
there are so many cooks in the kitchen and it's a very, 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 very expensive kitchen. Like the ingredients they're cooking with are not cheap. And it's such a delicate balancing act to pull off anything on that level. Um, and I can't even imagine what like the line item budget for something like Dune or Godzilla even looks like. And all of the profit participation, all of the, you know, we would need the boys from industry to come in and explain to us just like all of these companies, like how does legendary work? They put up hundreds of millions in expectation of return, getting in return hundreds of millions more. Mm-hmm. That is extremely high stakes balancing act. And it, which isn't to say this can't work, which isn't to say that Warner Media didn't make this decision, this extremely bold decision without realizing this was going to happen and without being prepared to pay to make it work. But the expectations versus the return, I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of moving pieces here. And not everyone is going to be comfortable with it. And we're and, and I you notice I only responded to the first part of your question, yeah. which was the financial part. The artistic part, I mean, it's gotta be crushing. It's gotta be crushing for these people, you know. And and is as crushing it is for Denis Villeneuve, like when Dune finally comes out, we'd like to think that more theaters will be open around the world. For Patty Jenkins, who from you know early advance warning, and obviously this is the, the people they invite to see it are probably the softest touches, but Wonder Woman 84 sounds good. People seem thrilled with it. She not only spent years working on this and imagining a certain kind of rollout, then they press pause to avoid this. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it's it's this, you know? So it's it's tough. It's tough. It's I mean, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of suffering in the world this year, it's not tough. I should always use that caveat. But it has to be disappointing. And managing people's financial disappointments and their creative emotional disappointments Jason Killar's job right now is it's probably probably a little little bumpy. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break and when we come back we're going to get into our interview with Hannah Fidel. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy and right now they have unlimited talk, text and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a 3-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. 
So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, Andy. So we're about to be joined by Hannah Fidel, who's um, the creator, uh, writer, directed many episodes of A Teacher. She also made the original film, the 2013 movie that it's based on. This is a show that we haven't had a real chance to talk about on an episode-by-episode basis, or really at all, but I have been watching with my wife intently and enjoying, and it's really great that we got a chance to talk to Hannah because it's such a... It's a show that I think is like ripe for conversation, and it, it provokes a lot of... Uh, of, of conversation. What are your feelings on it? And, and, and how do you know Hannah? I really like and admire Hannah a lot as a filmmaker. As you said, she made the film A Teacher, which is excellent. And then she also made a follow-up that we both had a lot of time for, I think, called it The Long Dumb Road, starring our friend Jason Manzukis. I think one of his first, not a first, but he definitely came on the podcast to promote that movie at the time. And, you know, I think Hannah is an extremely talented director. She's also done a lot of TV work, including on The Act, on uh, which was on Hulu the other, uh, a year ago or two years ago. And, um, you know, th- that came through in our interview as well. This show is extremely challenging. It's challenging in its subject matter. It's challenging in what it asks of its performers. And it's challenging in what it asks of the audience. This is, I think we haven't found our way into the conversation talking about it, partly because it is a decidedly tough hang at times, as it should be, because it is a show that, you know, sees thorny issues of consent and grooming, and it dives right in, you know, and does not hold back and... Uh, ultimately presents something that is that is, I think, extremely tough and fair-minded, and features just a phenomenal performance from Kate Mara, who, as I say in the subsequent interview, remains my number one Mara, my number one Mara draft pick. And it was great to talk to Anne about it because I think the challenges of 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 uh, executing a show like this are there are a lot. It's a very difficult bar to clear, and I think she does. Um, Many episodes are streaming now on, on FX on Hulu. I think we're up to seven or eight yes. as of this week uh, out of 10 total. We do not talk past where the show is. It's a more general conversation. Um, and we love talking to Hannah. Yeah, so let's get into our interview right now. Chris and I are thrilled to be joined by the creator, the writer, the director of most of the episodes, I think, of the really amazing FX series, FX on Hulu, I should say, series, a teacher, Hannah Fidel. Welcome to The Watch. Hi. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Very happy to be here. <laughs> we we are so excited to have you, not only because we're thrilled to talk about this show with you, but also you have been kind enough to say that you are a listener of this podcast. Big time. Um, which really puts the pressure on us, I think, <laughs> <laughs> to deliver. Hannah, I, I, I know that this is not the takeaway that most people are going to take from a teacher, but I think it's a testament to how long I've spent inside of my house that I was watching an episode last night so this we'll be airing this this podcast on Monday. I believe it's tonight's episode, and the character Eric is is outdoors at a, a food truck having a couple of beers. And I was like, God, I miss Austin. Like I was like, I I don't think that that's like the takeaway you're supposed to have from a teacher. But I was like, I can't wait to go get food truck barbecue and a couple of beers outdoors. <laughs> I feel the same way, and it brings me so much joy that you felt like you missed Austin from that scene because we had it in Calgary. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very authentic to me. Great. The, the magic of Hollywood. Um, 
Hannah, I, I have sort of a, it, it might be a winding question, or at least might demand a winding answer, because um, for people who don't know, A Teacher began for you with the film, which is a really excellent movie you made. It came out in 2013, called A Teacher, similar subject matter. And I, I guess the two-part question is, could you talk us through a little bit about the evolution of A Teacher as it went from movie to TV show seven years later, yeah. but also specifically about what was it about this story in particular that kept you engaged with it as it evolved. And it did evolve considerably, I think, over the seven years. Yeah, totally. Um, well, where to begin? Uh, so the movie is very much only from the teacher's perspective. And that was due to just the limitations that come with making a small independent film. And we were lucky enough to get into Sundance and from there, people saw it and a producer approached me, Michael Costigan. And he said, I need to know what happens after the movie ends. And from there, we, um, and this was back in 2013, we actually originally sold it to HBO hmm. and we're developing it there and through just sheer luck or stupidity um i was able to retain the the rights to the underlying ip to the movie so uh the tv rights rather um so when it became clear that hbo wanted euphoria which is an amazing show uh that i love very much we took it back out to the marketplace and fx when we pitched them just really, uh, they they got it and have been great partners. But of course, you know, over those seven years, a lot happened culturally in terms of, I mean, specifically the Me Too movement. And that allowed me to engage with the story in a totally different way by opening it up. It's really a two-hander, both the student and the teacher, uh, both of their perspectives in it. And and so it feels fresh. It didn't feel like I was remaking something because to me, the characters actually feel quite different. The tone is very different. And also it's fun being able to remake your own stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a bad, it's a bad metaphor for a, a show about a teacher, but you got another bite at the apple. Exactly. Uh, which not everyone gets to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's sort of uh, all around. I think I, in those seven years, I had made a few more movies. I had done some more TV and um, and I think I learned a lot that helped me sort of build out the show as a whole. And so where along in that process did, did Kate get involved? Was she all the way back in the HBO days or is she more of a recent addition when you guys moved to FX? It was uh, when we took it back out and, and went to FX. But, you know, I have to say, I really, I have to um, give major props to friend of the show, Jason Manzukis. Mm. Yeah. Because, star, star of one of your excellent movies, The yeah. Long Dumb Road. <laughs> yes, yes. When we were on the set of my film Long Dem Road, we were talking about how I was about to go take out the show again and how much I hate pitching. And he <laughs> is a master pitcher. And so he he gave me 
advice for how to do it. And I, I really, I truly credit him with us being able to, to resell the show because he said, and I ended up doing this, he said, okay, you print out a stack of documents that are just photos of female teachers who have been caught sleeping with their students that you can then just hand over, just like drop it on the table and <laughs> go in to pitch. And we, we did. And, you know, so it was this, like, this is a real thing that happens. These women look seemingly normal. They don't look like villains. They don't look evil. Some of them are even attractive and our culture is obsessed with it. So he just, he, his brain is amazing, but thank you, Jason, if you're listening. I feel like I, that bag would have been a very strange thing to bring through like airport security. Yeah. You know, like I'm glad that you went directly to your pitch meetings. I'm, I'm just glad you didn't also just act like Rafi from the league in your pitch meetings. That probably would have been great point. You too. would have probably sold something. It just probably wouldn't have been a teacher. It wouldn't have been a teacher. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but can we, but to bring it back specifically to Kate Mara, because I think that Chris and I, Actually, I don't know if Chris agrees with me. This was one of the biggest arguments ever in the offices of the late lamented website, grantland.com, was who was the superior Mara. And I feel like, you know, I've been, I've been proved right because I have been repping Kate for the better part of a decade now. Chris, I think, was like Wellington. Wellington Mara is his favorite, <laughs> the, the owner of the New York Giants. So he was disqualified. But, I, you know, I, I can't imagine. I, I, I Generally, I'm sure you speak to any showrunner, they would... This, they could get a version of this question about their star that it would be almost impossible to make a show without a creative partner that you could rely on to this degree. I feel like that's especially so with a, pro with a, um, a project like this. And her performance is riveting um, yeah. and so layered and so committed. And yeah. it feels like you would need to have a very specific kind of uh, trust level and communication level with your star to, to, to execute like this. Well, she's fearless. I mean, and specifically fearless in her desire to uh, and being OK with not being likable. And I think that's something that a lot of actors struggle with, that they they need to be liked by the audience. And for her, what excites her about acting is playing roles that aren't necessarily the most likable because it makes it more exciting. She is an executive producer on the show. And as you guys know, sometimes actors just get that credit and that's part of the deal. Uh, but she really was a, uh, active EP read every single draft. I could talk to her early on about her character and just being able to have that sounding board and write for someone, I think really, was invaluable. But yeah, I mean, she just, she had a, this is a crazy to me now that I'm about to have a kid, but she had a kid three months before we started shooting. And um, she called me on her way to the hospital and was like, I'm having the baby early. I'm getting induced. This is going to be great for our shooting. <laughs> are, are you going to return the favor? Will you call her? On the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. hey Kate. Yeah, exactly. Some news. Yep. <laughs> um, Hannah, I was curious about your sort of 
relationship or research that you did on people of Eric's like age, like uh, whether or not, because I would imagine kids have changed a lot since 2013 in terms of the way technology plays a role in their life, even more so now than it did in 2013 and how that, how that has evolved over the years. And, and, and as you developed the character of Eric and truly made this like a two hander and, and worked, worked on that, on that part, what, how like the 2019, 2020 of it all factored into it? Yeah, I think to be perfectly honest, uh, the reason why we set the show in 2013 (laughs) was because we knew that we were going to fast forward in time. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to have to deal with what the future looked like uh, and end up making episode 10 into a Black Mirror episode. I mean, like our brains were already exploding in the writer's room when we were thinking about episode 10. So we landed on 2013 because for a variety of reasons, Um, one being Instagram was uh, a thing that people were using en masse by that point. And also it was pre-Me Too. And so the sort of wokeness that I I think a lot of young people have today, I don't think existed. And the conversations around consent and abuse of power weren't happening in 2013. And and it sort of makes Eric that much more vulnerable. And which to me makes it that much sadder. Hannah, you're talking about... um the Me Too movement and, and if not wokeness, but a general kind of awakening, uh, not just among people or young people, but I think, thankfully, and much overdue within, within the industry as well, in terms of its uh, approach to tackling more challenging subjects. And I wondered, for you navigating the creation of this show, and even up to while directing it, and some of the more intense scenes that you directed, how did you keep yourself attuned to all of it. And I, and I realize I'm kind of being vague here. What I mean is you have to make something that feels true to the art and to yourself, but you're also trying to be sensitive to the performers. You're trying to be sensitive to the potential viewers and to the, the audience in the future that will be receiving it. You know, and I, a lot was made this year. A, a term came into our conversation that I didn't know before of intimacy coordinator, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, yeah, and, so and that was for normal people, right? When normal people came out yeah. and, and, um, and so here you are making a show that requires a lot of very delicate intimacy coordination, whether you actually had one on set or not. And then also, you know, trying to be respectful of someone who's essentially being abused um, Mm -hmm. while being true to your art. How did you perform that balancing act? Well, for me, uh, I am myself a victim of sexual assault. So I, I feel like it maybe gave me more license to explore the various avenues of consent. Uh, in a way that someone who hasn't been through that trauma or healing process might be able to. I also, and this is as, you know, I'm I'm glad that we did this, really glad we did this, but we brought on consultants who were therapists who specialize in male victims of sexual abuse. And so through our And that was in the writer's room. So through our conversations with them, we really got a sense of what the 
trajectory of victimhood and uh, looks like because it's actually quite different than what it does for female uh, survivors. And I knew some people who had had relationships with their female high school uh, teachers and they were open with me and were willing to share their stories. But yeah, I think it's really, you know, for me, I care more about making something that's honest and and true instead of it being a advocacy piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we really, we were walking a very fine line with this show and, um, and I'm glad relieved in fact that people can see that because the, you know, we made a pretty bold decision that we wanted the audience to, feel complicit in the relationship early on. And, you know, that, that could be dangerous. Um, But part of that is because that is the, we wanted the audience to go on the same trajectory as Eric does, which is one of infatuation. Um, You you just alluded to it. It, it, It's ongoing in such an interesting way. And and anyone who follows you on on Instagram, as as I do, you know, are seeing that you are taking in all these reactions and the reactions are fascinating because people are watching it kind of like they watch a horror movie. They can't turn away. There is unquestionably kind of a salacious thrill in the viewing, in the act of viewing, you know, and it does make us complicit because in that moment when Claire confesses, you find you're, you're on the couch and you're like, don't do it. Don't do it. Even though, of course, the other, the friend, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the character's name. She's right. Yeah. Her reaction is a hundred percent the correct reaction and her behavior is spotless. And yet you've put us in this position. Yeah. Yeah. That was very purposeful. And, um, you know, I, I, people, I think don't talk about this enough, but Andy, I mean, you know, this as a showrunner, it's like, our job isn't just the writing. It's also we're in essence directing the audience. Yeah. Well. And we really went hog wild with that idea on this show. You know, I was kind of wondering about, because episode five in, in a lot of ways has been my favorite so far. The one, the episode where uh, Claire and Eric go away for the weekend. And I was, you're talking about the complicity in the in in the audience. I kind of I was like, I wonder whether or not I'm reacting to this because they're not being watched. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I think that a lot of those early episodes and then in the fallout afterwards has a lot to do with them concealing and then or dealing with the fallout from what they've done. But that sort of one moment of suspended animation, they're in that house and they can be anybody that they sort of want to be, which is obviously with each other. Mm-hmm. As bad of an idea as that is. But I felt myself getting sucked into cheering for them. You know what I mean? Because I think I saw like they do have a very sincere connection, even though it's it's really uh, fucked up, you know, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about making that episode particularly and if how you kind of handled maintaining a distance from these two characters while they're the only two people we're going to see for a majority of the episode. Yeah, no, we. I think the direction that I gave the writer's room was I want the audience to feel like they've been punched in the stomach at the end of this episode. Yeah. And in order to do that, we really needed to build up the, um, 
the fairy tale that these two are living in and that the audience might be living in as well. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I find that episode to be so incredibly sad yeah, uh, because it is, it's the balloon being popped. It is reality hits Claire like a ton of bricks and we finally are able to have that voice of reason in Catherine, the teacher that I think all of us <laughs> want over the <laughs> five episodes um, leading up to it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, we always knew that we wanted Claire to, to be the one to out herself mm-hmm. uh, because that was the most unexpected uh, version but yeah, it's, it's an intense step. <laughs> but I, I, but I love the way directorially and just in terms of how you ran the series, you, you puncture the balloon so intensely visually as well, because you go from those beautiful vistas of their rental home yeah. to the griminess of the motel. Um, I think just one episode later and it does not feel escapist or romantic or special in any way. It's the opposite. <laughs> I, you know, there are a lot of things that go into any any show, and I think there are, we could go down a list of things that you know that, that moved us, or that we commend you for, whether it was you know it's casting or the use of social media on the screen. But there's one particular technical uh, or procedural, I guess, decision that you made that I want to stand up and applaud, and I'm very curious about where it came from. Which is, you made a half hour drama. <laughs> I'm so glad, and not just purely because, not not purely because I, I like things shorter, but because it's it's unexpected. It changes the rhythm. And I think ultimately, and I didn't know this going in, that it gets so uncomfortable at times that this is the correct dosage. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously people yeah. can, especially now you can binge multiple episodes on FX or on FX on Hulu, but this feels right. And I wondered if that was your intention going in or if it was a suggestion or if it was something you found along the way. No, that was from day one at HBO. It was always going to be a half hour uh, drama. And I think... Where uh, we were really drawn to that, a friend of mine, Amy Simons, made The Girlfriend Experience, which I think does such an excellent job uh, as well of utilizing the half-hour drama format. But by watching that, I really was able to see that, yes, it's possible. And even, I mean, it's weird, it's a weird comparison, but just... In the architecture, I I kept looking at, and I know it's technically a comedy, but I kept looking at Atlanta Mm -hmm. and just the way that they skip in time and fast forward and episodes can be these contained moments and that that's okay. So, you know, I, it, it opened up a lot of freedom for what we could show and also what we didn't have to show, which, which was great. You know, I just, I was curious about the, the moments, you know, especially when Eric first goes to school uh, and the way in which his friends are sort of celebrating his behavior. And then there's also, um, God, I don't know the name of the actress, but she's in Shithouse, the, the, the woman who plays his first college girlfriend kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Dylan. Yeah. yeah, she's great. And 
the the introduction of a lot of the sort of vocabulary for how to understand his situation, both in terms of like his frat brothers being like, you're a legend, which sort of kind of confirms his I'm the motherfucking man stuff in the mirror. But then the first kind of wave he gets of like, no, you should be, you know, you're a victim and you should kind of understand that about yourself. And I want to take it slow because of that. I was curious about you know, where you're thinking, how you're thinking has evolved over the years making it about what a character like Eric must have been going through in that situation and how, especially since you do set it in a very, I know obviously it was Calgary apparently, but like, I think that that culture of like frat, like UT frat culture would have that element of it. But it was really interesting to me that you're introducing Eric to all these ideas of how to understand his own situation. Yeah, I think that was really from the conversations that I had with the consultants in the writer's room who were therapists who had specialized in this sort of thing. And from the conversations I had with people, I, I knew guys, I knew who had gone through it. The frat guy world is one that sadly I know too well. I went <laughs> to Indiana university, dated the president of a fraternity. It, those guys can write themselves. I want a spinoff of just the <laughs> frat life. <laughs> Let me make that show someone. Uh, but I, um, you know, I, I think that episode, and this is episode seven, really <sighs> exemplifies what, what makes it so hard to be a male victim. Mm-hmm. What the double standard of can men even be victims? Um, which obviously they can be, but I think so much of the show is about that conversation because it's the same confusion that Eric feels about whether he is or isn't a victim based on the way that people are talking to him that I hope that the audience is also having with each other um, as they're watching. A teacher is not uh, necessarily light watching. um, And I don't think you would ex- intend it to be. No. Um, but Chris and I have found some small amounts of fun at the margins with, yeah. uh, it's we always a tragic talk, character. Got to talk about Lake Light. But we have to talk about Lake Light because <laughs> the, the commitment to this guy having a, essentially his, a Wilco his covers band. to music. Don't, don't, let's not minimize I, what Matt's doing here, you know? My, my favorite moment in the series, just like on a, on a, enjoyment level not an appreciation level may have been when she returns home claire returns from her home from her first assignation um with her student and my man matt just has the boys over and he's like we were just we were just just chatting about things we could cover and i said why not get together why not do why not jam (laughs) and you know it's 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 beautifully observed and um (laughs) it's not even a question it's not even a question. Maybe, maybe we could just we could just jam now that we're all here. <laughs> are are there Lake Light originals lying around? Like, did you get anything to tape of like? Are, are is it kind of like a broken social scene thing, or is it? We we talked a lot about this in the writers' room. Uh, yeah, it's really it it's uh, it's a lot of Wilco broken social scene exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I have to say, shout out to my husband Jake. He's in a Grateful Dead cover band and uh, (laughs) 
love we, it we, very much. We have to. We saw him at the bowl. Uh, Chris and I were at the show hey. when yeah. when he opened for Vampire Weekend. So we know this is lived experience, and we were going to ask you how this played out in your own home. But judging by the beautiful Christmas tree and everything, it seems like you've worked it's it out. Going well. Yeah. Good. <laughs> no, uh, I. You know, I. I think. You know, he loves the character of Matt <laughs> for obvious reasons. That scene when Claire comes home and finds Matt's used his grandfather's bonds to buy all of this equipment that will never lose value. I mean, I can't tell you how much joy that brings him when (laughs) he watches the show. Um, But yeah, I mean, for something that I feel very strongly about and, and that I've learned since making the original movie is that you just, you have to have moments of levity. Yeah. Because otherwise, especially with a show whose subject matter is so dark like this, it just would be painful to watch. And so I love that you guys picked up on that nugget. We threw in as what, many- what a shock, honestly. You know, yeah. like- but, but also like, in, and Hannah, you know this from making many movies, but it's also now in as, as a showrunner, you know, God is is in the details. And when you take the time to name it Lake Light, it's just chef's kiss. Oh but it goes further than that because it, it it becomes part of the visual language and the emotional language of the show because I'm thinking about a, a later moment, which is not a light moment whatsoever. But there's a moment later in the series when Matt is basically like, we're going to make this work. I forgive you. Uh, very quickly, he says this. And he says it over a takeout rotisserie chicken, which I can't stop thinking about. Because in a normal life, him jamming, having some nice oaky cab in the evening, you know, rotisserie chicken. This is fine. This is not, not even dog and burning house. This is fine. This is actually fine, but it wasn't fine for her. And you feel that she's going to feel overwhelmed and run out of there before she does because of the way he's cutting that rotisserie chicken. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a goner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Hannah thank you so much for spending so much time with us today you've been really generous and and we really enjoy the show so congratulations uh, on the show this is you've been working on this for so long I know we world knows and it's really exciting to see it be received so well and have it out in the world thank you so much and Chris I have one question for you okay Kings of London yeah why (laughs) (laughs) she's a plant Honestly, it's like, it's a problem. It's a problem. My (laughs) friends know it's a problem for me, but like, I don't even know if I can feel anymore. You know, it's just like, I need like violence on that level just to feel like I'm like awake in the morning. Like when I watch, when I'm watching something like that, I need those guys to take it to that level. I feel like that show fell off a little bit after, uh, we don't need to get into it. (laughs) Did you watch the whole thing or were you just like, what the fuck is he talking about? Well, my husband started watching it because you love it so much. Oh my God, and so I'm sorry. I dipped in and I had, I, I told Andy this, I had legit nightmares <laughs> about knife fights in British dudes the night after. <laughs> I, I think there's a way to kind of pivot your thinking maybe before you dream and just imagine that you're in the gang of London. Because I feel like your dream was that you were being attacked and beset by gangs of London. Right. But I would feel more secure going out into London knowing that I had the gang with their knives and ashtrays and stuff flanking me. It's all about that perspective shift. That's right. But just like your show, A Teacher, 
streaming now on FX on Hulu. Bang! Podcast. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so Nailed much. It. Guys, thank you. Thanks, for I'm so, so sorry I made you watch that. <laughs> Where's my apology? <laughs> well, you, you have to. It's a professional obligation. <laughs> Bye, guys. Take care. Thank you, Hannah. Yep. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.